there's nobody like my next guest, Chili Gonzalez. There's just nobody like him. He is a musical genius, a piano player, a composer, a writer, an entertainer, a comedian. And I've been lucky enough, we've been friends for a while, and I have seen over the past years just a never-ending pursuit of interesting projects. Uh, and that ranges from writing and producing and directing movies to uh, his conservatory. Anyway, just a really, really interesting, fun, smart, and obviously incredibly talented individual. And I think with this podcast, this edition of Last Party on Earth, you get a pretty good uh, look inside his mind. Now, this was recorded pre-pandemic. This is like an artifact from the past. Don't ask why it took so long. Uh, the reason I've decided to release it anyway is because it's totally timeless. What we discuss, which is really kind of the intersect between DJing and being a musician. We talk about the similarities, the differences, and all of it is, uh, it's aged really well, actually. We talk about um, karaoke. We talk about jam sessions, dancing, daft punk, lip syncing. We talk about something he is very familiar with, the art of the spectacle, the genetic makeup of a master plan, Prince, and... Uh, Christmas, which is interesting because he has a Christmas album coming out now. Uh, anyway, I loved the conversation. It was really fun and it was nice to go back to it because uh, I hadn't listened to it in a while. So this is Last Party on Earth with Chili Gonzalez. Last, last party. Okay, um, so we are here. Uh, welcome to another edition of Last Party on Earth, and I'm here with a very close friend, uh, a pretty important figure in my life on the friend level and the creative level, Gonzalez. Chili Gonzalez. Chili Gonzalez. <laughs> um, we are in Montreal, which is nice because uh, obviously I live here and you have a lot of, I mean, you're from here or you're from around here yeah, born of, here and studied music here exactly and we got a nice classic disastrous week of winter weather and it's uh so anyway it's great to see you i'm very excited so the format of the show so far the first season of the show i did six or seven episodes and they were mostly with djs and i'm looking this year we're expanding to musicians artists producers so the format of of picking music for your ultimate party i think we're gonna get a, we can get like kind of a different take on it because you are well you're not like you're not a dj you're something well, yes. much more and when you i was thinking about this because i thought well what is a party to me and i know that for a dj a party is a gig. Yes. You didn't invite all those people. They aren't your friends. I mean, a few of them. Maybe a few no. of them. Yeah. But it's a work. very different definition in my mind. A party for me would be a sort of intimate gathering with friends. And I would never consider getting into a theater where I perform for 2,000 audience members a party. But in the DJ world, it seems that the word party has kind of been transplanted onto what is actually essentially a capitalistic transactional <laughs> evening where people pay money to sort of experience a sense of community with strangers. And that's something I have never done either as a, uh, you know, as, as a person, I never felt a need to do that because my friends were musicians. And so the role of the party was sort of filled initially by two things. One would be a jam session where basically you get together with your friends and you're in a room with a bunch of instruments, you switch instruments, you never really decide what song you're going to play. And it's probably something not unlike the bongos in the park here in Montreal, where a <laughs> bunch of hippies get together and play bongos, you know? So it sort of has a bit of a stoner culture aspect to it. But what's nice is that you'll end up with someone maybe like, let's say, Peaches or Feist, who normally makes a very specific kind of music and you'll see them sort of let their hair down and sort of you get to see peaches playing the bongos in a funk jam and it sort of takes away all the pretension of every note i play as part of my musical identity and everyone kind of 
democratizes themselves to sort of be a cheesy musician in a way. And when you jam, it's probably not something that anyone would want to listen to. If you listen back to a recording, you'd probably be like nonplussed or perhaps even horrified. So that's one aspect of social life that sort of amounts to a party. But the other one, and this is where I think I get much closer to what a DJ does, is to rock a house party at the piano doing sing-alongs. That can be Christmas songs, as I most recently did in my flat in London. I held a party and started with Christmas songs. There were kids and their families there. It started around 5 p.m. When the kids went to bed, it turned into this kind of karaoke party and that's i think the closest i get to what we're talking about here is karaoke essentially live karaoke on the piano people yelling out requests me coming up with songs that i know will get everyone into the communal space just to start with that view of what djs do that at base there's that transactional thing is super interesting i never even really thought about it in that sense but i want to get back to that because i want to get back to what how that affects a party and is that like a necessary sacrifice in order to get parties large enough like to get to a certain energy level do you just need that transactional thing you know to make it big enough well, but if you would you dj if you had a dinner party for 10 of your friends in Montreal, would you at some point go over to Dex next to the room you're hanging out in? I think I might have when I was really young, when I was just starting. And I think there are DJs that would, definitely. But but I want to... Okay, first I want to mention just quickly, I remember a few times when we... So for listeners out there, we've been friends for a while now. A little bit of background. So we've been friends since when? I don't know. 2006? 2006. So now it's a while. I remember I've told this story before, but I kind of cold called you. I saw your picked. I I heard your music. This is around the entertainist period. You're living in Berlin, and I had seen photos of you in track suits, and I'd heard some of your music, and I was like, I was like, he's gonna be my friend. Like I was sure on a bunch of levels that we would share, and it all turned out to be pretty accurate. Anyway, but what I wanted to say was, so years past, we we made lots of music together. We've hung out a lot, and then we even did the, uh, your movie. Uh, you did a chess movie. Uh, ivory tower what's that 2010 or something? that's right almost 10 years ago now and so the reason i'm bringing it up was i remember we were in toronto uh during shooting of that and i remember there were some times where like me you feist came by peaches were there and i would see you guys just start like singing songs you know playing things harmonizing with each other like i was like blown away i mean i remember thinking that it was so much fun very it struck me as very well for me it was really exotic but it seemed so playful and so i don't know like kind of naive and not naive but just like it just seems so pure in such a nice it's, way it's a bit childlike yeah and yeah. it seems really celebratory and really is that kind of is that part of the core of what you're talking about 100 okay for me music should always feel like pure playfulness and even though i studied music and there are moments where it's very serious because i'm trying to actually like improve my skill in learning about harmony or something i'm a trained musician uh, but i'm always careful that the training is only there to be able to eventually make the playfulness that much stronger at a later point like when people say how is it possible that every song i yell out when i'm rocking one of these karaoke parties how is it possible that i can play every one of these songs well my training comes in handy and if someone yells out a song if someone yells out total eclipse of the heart for example which is <laughs> which by i was the way, listening to last night well that's why i think of the example that's a very deceptively complex song If you start to really sit at the piano in real time, you realize, whoa, there's these key changes coming. This is a hard song to play. This isn't quite the, th- the three chord, uh, you know, sort of simple little jewel that you think it is. And in that moment, my brain 
can sort of revert some, you know, 50% of my brain can be diverted to trying to anticipate what that key change is going to be so that I don't lose the party. And it's the same thing when you're rocking a party and you're trying to think of like that next song and you have that problem of how to get there, how to get the, the, the beat lining up yeah. and all those different things that a DJ has to do on a technical tempo, level. Tempo. Whether it's tempo, whether it's key, all that stuff. I understand that that is very technical for you guys. And yet the result is just like a smooth, seamless, ecstatic reaction from the crowd. They don't know necessarily that part of your brain is devoted to a very technical pursuit to make their experience yeah. sort of this, this, this seamless thing that they'll never know what goes into it. And that's very similar to what I'm doing on the piano when I'm trying to sort of go, wait a second, what's the key change here again? Sometimes I'll start a song and I'll realize it's the wrong key. For the, for the crowd to sing along with. And then I'll have to kind of like expertly put in a key change at some moment so that they never realize that I've changed the key because the party and the communal seamlessness has to continue. And this is why I think this is, this is where the Venn diagram of what you do and what I do overlap. Well, a few things. I'm going to throw out to listeners a few things that you already know because we've talked about many times, but I just think they're funny things. Like still to this day, whenever I put like the BPM on a record ever, I I hear you in my head being like something effective like, oh, you DJs and your BPM, like how that, how that just the tempo, which I guess to you is just kind of one among many things, like to DJs that has such a prominent place, you know, but I want to say, so, okay, so I want to drill down on something that I didn't anticipate us talking about, but I guess some of these things are going to come across as a little bit DJ, not versus musician, but where the overlap is and where their real difference is. So you talk about a party being about playfulness and a childlike quality. What do you think of big giant raves where everyone's just ideally tripping in some weird psychedelic I, I've zone. Never, I've never been to one, and that would then get us closer to the jam session okay. part. That's why I was thinking about what what are my overlaps with DJ culture. One is the karaoke, because I'm I'm the the metro D of their night. The other would be the jam session so where... The, so, so the karaoke is, the, you feel the overlap with DJing? With, with, with the more, DJing and rocking a party. Okay. And having a lot of technical things to do to make sure that that experience is seamless and much more interaction with an audience reading more of what's happening reading the audience exactly okay giving them what they want just being the metric okay i see and then the jam session the jam session is where you sort of get deep ego death things get deep you play the same thing for 12 minutes the drug of choice would be marijuana you'd smoke weed and just play the same thing and then you kind of at one point look up and you just realize that you're, everybody's gone deep into a zone forgotten where they are and the music has just brought us all together into one membrane and that's of course a beautiful thing which I have not experienced in terms of uh, having ever been to a rave or taken those kinds of drugs but I imagine it must be close yeah so I got a couple questions first of all so you have no tattoos right you have no you don't have a tattoo no, I don't have a t- I don't have tattoos. And you've never DJed. And denim has never touched this skin. No denim? Never t- never worn denim in my so life. This is the Holy Trinity and you've never DJed, am I right? I've never DJed. <gasps> That's it's pretty incredible. I left a lot of money on the table. <laughs> so I want to ask you this I didn't really I hadn't planned necessarily ask, but what do you think of DJs? I think there are exceptions, but I'm very snobby and I don't respect them. <laughs> Yes, I have a part. I have I have a part no, in my I'm, show. This is important. I, I mean, you're an exception. Okay. I mean, why am I an exception? Just curious. Because I know you. It's in your blood. Okay. And I've seen what, Alex de- from Boys Noise DJ. And I've seen, I, I know that it's truly hard work. Okay. But I'm too much of a music snob to uh, to embrace all of them. I can only. So what's s- the what's your gut like? What's your straight thought on like? You go wild to say what you really think. Yeah, DJs are frustrated musicians. They wish they were musicians. They wish they were make. They wish they were making music. They can't. This is the closest they get, and they can get a little bit of the excitement of feeling like a musician. They never really got into it. From uh, you know, they're, they're always on the outside of the window looking in. Do you think? I mean, why is that Daft Punk album with live musicians such a failure? 
because they respected the musicians too much. Yes, that's for sure. They weren't able to tell the musicians, no, stop that. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah, Don't yeah. play a fretless bass. Why do you yeah, have three cymbals? I could have done that because I'm a musician and I've been through the whole virtuosity You don't versus... romanticize it. You, you see it for what it is. Exactly right. Yeah. But I know that even someone as heavy as Tama Bangalterra had a blind spot because he fundamentally comes from a DJ culture. He romanticizes musicians. Well, they also, yeah, DJs also, they, you know, you like what's on the other side of the fence. You know, you don't fully understand it. You think it's... But do uh, I romanticize what happens when a DJ is playing for someone? No. Musicians aren't jealous of DJs. No. But I do find... But No, you don't. You don't. I am actually surprised, though, by how many art... Well, let's loosely call it artists want to be DJs. I am surprised by how many reg, like people want to be DJs. Yeah, corny ones, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, the corny musicians do. <laughs> this goes into something that's pretty interesting, but what about... I mean, I agree. I know loads of DJs, myself included. Look, I used to straight up say, I mean, I would write it down on lists and stuff. Like, I want to make real music. The fact you even use that word and you somehow differentiate your own productions from more real and more developed is says a lot. And I was super, that's part of why I was always so excited to work with, well, Dave and Steph, for example, Solwax, which I considered, you know, they could play guitar and all kinds of things. And obviously you, and I, I'm one of those people, I romanticize a little bit. I don't understand it, but I want to ask you a question about, but what about, can sorry. I just add one yes, thing in? Yes. Because I, I don't want it to be a one-sided sort of extreme conversation. I have a lot of respect for the hard work it is to be a DJ. So I like make the, a differentiation. Like the traveler side of it. Yes. So the music snob part of me really will say, oh, there's something fundamental about um, a DJ who wishes they were a musician and sort of like judging that harshly, which is probably a lot, very defensive ego-based position, yeah. if I'm really honest yeah. as well. It's like, well, I did all this work to become a musician. You can't just like play records and have my, everything that I worked so hard for. So the fact that there is such a a, a tangible goal when a DJ is playing is something I really respect. A, a DJ is more like a stand-up comedian who has to get a, a very clear result. Functional. Functional. And, and this I actually envy because there's something, when I play a concert, there's such thing as polite applause, but, but in a way you never really know if you really got them sometimes. There's something, there's this little gray zone there that is actually pretty frustrating for me when I play in my concert hall. And I sort of wish some other part of me wishes I had that sort of, the comedian needs to make them laugh, the, the, the DJ needs yeah, to make them... Yeah, and the clear metrics for if it works or if it doesn't. That's correct. And I do respect that. My snobbery does not include thinking that DJing is by any means easy. My snobbery comes from judging that the DJ might think that they have the same sort of status as a musician. Yeah. Okay, but this this leads to something which I think, what about the DJ's ability, and I do think most good DJs have this, from their exposure to crowds, what about their understanding of simplicity? So for example, like let's take, you can play anything on the piano, right? More or less. I mean, I'm saying from my, I mean, you can play a lot. I mean, you, you understand it, you can recreate it you, on the performance level, on the theoretical level. Whatever. So what about the classic, simple, house riff, right? What about the class? I mean, like the cornerstones of house music, let's say, I mean, the big, the strings of life and the, you know, some of the, the song structures that are really simple that must on some level seem almost like, uh, ridiculously simple. Is that a, a real skill in and of itself? Or is that the absence of, of more training? No, that's not the absence of training. I listen to rap music, also a very simple, repetitive music. I listen to a lot of minimalism, which is essentially what what classical music became in the 60s and 70s. Philip Glass, Steve Reich. Mm. And there is that overlap. Steve Reich was famously sampled in one of Underworld's most famous tracks, blah, blah, blah. So I also came from an indie rock background, which is very anti-training, anti-virtuosity. I got rid of my issues about overplaying. No, I know you making don't. my music too complicated in my you early twenties. You don't have that as a blind spot, but I, I just mean that is that is that really a skill? The fact that a lot of it's DJ sk- and dance yes, music is. is so simple. Of course, it's a skill because it relates to that yes or no answer of the stand-up comedian needing to laugh or not. And you famously would always tell me when we were working together, no. 
Now you've crossed over. That's too much music. Yeah, you would always tell me, no, it's too many chords. That's too much of a riff. That's that the musical elements are drawing too much attention to themselves. Yeah, and we need to reorient this. And you know best because I've never even been to a is rave that in about, your experience. So is that about knowing the audience? Is that just about our real deep understanding of the environment? Just simply that's knowing right. what works? Yeah, you've been in this since you were twelve years old. You know it. Do you think that's the same as like funk musicians? Yes. It's the same as any musician in their world. I guess in classical okay. music, there's all, there are also codes. Every genre has its codes. The, the difference is that in dance music and the, the art of DJing uh, is a narrower goal, which in some ways simplifies things for you and for the music, but uh, is maybe something that's harder for other musicians to fully understand and respect. Absolutely. Do you ever think this, maybe this gets a little bit too philosophical, whatever, but sometimes I think that the narrowness of, of what you just described mixed with the functionality has made dance music like the perfect storm of modern music. Like in the sense that I think of it sometimes like pornography. It's, it's this endless effective loop that achieves its goal every time, never really needing to change. That well, rap much. is the same, but rap has rap, but rap always has, has the personality on top. I was going to say rap. Rap has, has the charisma. The magic trick of, of rap is to have that simplicity and that with, directness, along with then something that's much more personal. Has the zoom in and the zoom out. Yeah, which to me make rap. Rap still for me is always classic entertainment in that sense. You you have the personality. You know, at the end of the day, that's you have Young Thug, the person that you're like, oh, wow, you know. Right, and that beat without Young Thug would is just, just is, is one of is thousands. It's just it's nothing. Yeah. yeah, it's just like bread with no nothing in it to make it a sandwich. But I think that's why I could never listen to dance music at home or th- what you're calling the sort of pornography equivalent of a perfect loop, because I need the personality. I do, I, and that's why rap has always been my chosen so what totem do you think, of modern music. So, what do you think about people that don't need that? Like, I drive around in my car still. I mean, like my, my son makes fun of me. Like, they're just like, what are you listening to? Like, is this just, whether it's just endless ambient stuff or just techno, just on loop, I still do. I just sometimes think some people just, I guess that's just taste. You can't. It's just taste. And there's something about what it does to your immediate environment that probably lets you think in yes. some way. It soundtracks things rather than, rather than adding that narrative or whatever. Yeah, maybe. Sometimes I think it's insane, but I guess that's for all musicians, just the amount you've heard, the repetitiveness and and how you still, sometimes I think about when you're tweaking drums or whatever, just the fact you've done it millions of times. Okay. I, one, before we get onto your party, did you ever even once consider wanting to DJ? No. And it never, it was never even close? Like, no. No, you know, okay. I, I, uh... <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. It seems like a crazy question. And when you say it like that, I a hundred percent understand. The only weird thing is of how many people now do DJ, like how many people that you would think it would be absurd, but they're like, no, I'll, I'll give it a shot. You know, it became like photography or whatever. It became like everyone. There is an illusion that anyone can do it because the sentence is all you have to do is play records. That is not the case with a musical instrument necessarily where there has to be some baseline of I've put in maybe at least some craft, a little bit of craft or time in order to be able to to do it. And um, and so it has the illusion of democratizing music making, which does attract a lot of bottom feeders let's be honest <laughs> like now anyone yeah. can say they're a photographer yeah it is it's similar it's similar um anyway i'm happy you never dj'd when i meet people that have never dj'd i like it it just makes me feel good so so look if if i am a snob and have these weird ego-based reactions to djs not really being musicians at least i owe it to myself to walk the walk and then refuse to do it. Yes, that is true. Because there are probably people who share my snobbery who then do it because they think, oh, well, I can do that and I'll make... No, there's no hypocrisy here. You've managed to... At least, I would would hope that people can recognize there's no hypocrisy. I'm willing to... For me, if there's no hypocrisy, this is just in general, I'm willing to forgive people almost everything. 
So what are we going to do? We're going to do Dream Party. What's an opening record for you? What do you consider an opening? So I think when Tell you... Tell me, set it up. Yes. So if I'm at the piano and I'm meant to sort of rock the party in terms of getting everyone to sing along, you have to understand that there are different kinds of songs. People tend to gravitate to the guilty pleasures uh, that they experienced when they were in a pre-taste mindset as kids. So for my generation, that'll generally be a lot of 80s music. And what you have to then differentiate is anthemic songs that don't have a lot of first person in them. Okay. I would consider Shout by Tears yes. for Fears to be a very good example of that. Shout, shout, let it all out. These are the things I can do without. Come on. I'm talking to you. Come on. Shout, shout, let it all out. The ball. There's no word I in shout. So there's no specific viewpoint. It is anthemic. It is proscriptive. It is literally has an imperative and telling you to shout, shout, let it all out. So this is a good way to start because it creates community when there is a song without the word I in it. The minute you have the word I, you're risking risking sort of personalizing it too much and you will find people sort of fall away from singing along with something that becomes too much about one person's perspective. And then there are songs, of course, that have I and my and things like that in them, but that that don't really... um, Rap songs are really difficult when people do karaoke for that exact reason, because rap is so personal. Yeah, then you're actually like you're trying to be the person, which is embarrassing. That's right, whereas pop music from the 80s when it's done well has a universal quality yeah girls just want to have fun that's right so i would start with something like um you know shout uh, (laughs) other songs that okay uh, so then but just to begin with so there's no concept of a warm-up i mean if you jump right into shout it's it's get party going i'm saying like again well the warm-up the warm-up would be (laughs) like what about when people are filtering into the room you can't come with shout right away i'm not playing the piano when people filter into Ah. the room i wait until i'm commanded to take my my spot on the piano bench so at that point they'll be just you know filler (laughs) not filler but i'll i'll put i'll i'll probably put on some um background music and i played piano in restaurants and hotels my whole adolescence and early 20s to to make a living and that's background music which i respect enormously i'll play the piano in those places to create an atmosphere that is still important musicians tend to think if i'm not really being listened to actively then i'm doing something wrong and they have looked down on background music in a way as wallpaper but i sort of tend to think the opposite all of my music should also work as wallpaper as well as deep listening. I guess it's like we were saying, well, it comes down to just respecting the functional performance in any given environment. That's right. I feel it's, I'm being useful if my music is the background music of a hipster dinner party. Some people might say that derisively about my solo piano albums. Oh, that's just background music for a hipster dinner party. I'm like, yeah, it's background music (laughs) for a hipster dinner party. Thank you. Mission accomplished. Something like that. Yeah. I feel like that with DJing sometimes, sometimes you get stuck with a, like it's a half empty, a half full room or like a warm up set. And then actually quickly your brain switches, not so much to like, it's just a different challenge. And then you're like, can I make the best of this energy level, That's which right. actually pretty quickly becomes like a fun challenge. You know, but usually. shout has a slow tempo, so it is. It does have, ele- and because it has the impersonal lyrics, in a way, it, it shout wouldn't work at the height of the party, and that's why I say I would. I would sort of open with it, even though it doesn't seem like a warm yeah, that's up. That's true. Height a, of the party, it's too obvious. Too, it's a bit obnoxious. That's right. It's a party starter well because well everyone played. can find their way into that one. The melody is very easy to sing. Shout. Shout, let it all out. It's got this anthem thing. You sort of pump your fist to it rather than clutch your heart, which is what I would do when I'm sort of getting to the peak of the party. You want more emotional things. I'm super happy you brought up shout. 
by Tears for Fears, by the way, if anyone out there does not it. Sam and Dave. Just a little bit louder now. Just a little bit louder now. Oh no, stop. Stop. Hey. stop. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Not that two shout. things two things I want to say. One, because I've thought about this a lot with shouts specifically, and I feel about this about a lot of 80s stuff. Is there a modern equivalent to shout? Is number one question. And number two, I guess it's kind of the same thing as what you said. I love the term pre-taste. So that these things that we fall in love with in a kind of pre-taste, pre-critical, whatever, pre-peer group zone, which is a super, I guess, just honest, innocent Pure love. goosebumps without thinking, is this a definition of my identity? Yeah. Well, I love that stuff. I mean, I'll probably come back to that later. I'm pretty obsessed with that concept, maybe a bit too much. And I oftentimes just wonder how deeply can you fall in love with music as you get older, I guess, is a simple way to put it. Like, do you, is that, re- can you replicate that? But, but with Shout, can you think of anything that's like a modern equivalent to Shout? It, it's earnest and ambitious. And um, I feel like the music that's being made today tends to be much more individualistic. And of course, that's so like audacious itself, to come with that. Just everyone shout. Yes. Like, no, we're in a different time where um, I think, especially the earnestness and the ambitiousness. I guess ambition is the word I'm looking for. I love that word. Is uh, is has turned to something else, and now yeah. we're in a much more individualistic, and um, you know there is a lot of cynicism. I mean, literally, we have songs called like "Bitch, Better Get My Money." You know, it's just very different from "Shout, Shout, Let It All Out." Those are polar opposites as far as yeah. the message. So, they're in the room. They had some background music. You're called to the piano. You bust out "Shout." Things are looking good, and every exact things are looking good because everyone feels together, and no one had to say the word "I," and you've unconsciously sort of created this unit out of That's the people singing. That's a very house singing. music mentality, actually. Yeah. I like it. It is a house party. It is a house party. But, okay, you never went to, like, a full-on rave. No. Why would I? What do you mean? Well, that's not... You were never tempted? No. Okay, well, that, you got to at least admit, puts you in a pretty small percentile. Probably. I don't like crowds of people. I don't necessarily like the tempo of that music. I know, I know. I'm very self-conscious about dancing. I literally wrote a song once called Don't Make Me Dance, which is just like announcing my fear of an attractive woman saying, let's go dancing tonight. My nightmare. That sounds like one of my songs. Okay, yes, yes, yes. If this was the 90s, I'd give you a free pass. But by now, every conceivable walk of life, from the dentist's, to the professors, to the, I mean, pretty much almost everyone now at some point either tries it, you know, by accident or gets dragged to the party or whatever. And it is. Uh, look, I, I, in my adolescence, I just played piano all the time. I was not interested in drinking or experimenting with drugs. I discovered smoking weed in my early 20s as a way to simply cope rather than to necessarily bring me closer with people. I started smoking weed alone to make music and to self-medicate. And luckily, I was so satisfied with my life of music making. And when I found my group of friends who shared that, other music making stoners, it removed any need for curiosity about a social life or further community in my life. And it was an open and shut case. I've never looked back. Well, I, I mean, one day I'm a, we're going to go to a party together. One day. If only just because... Don't make me dance. <laughs> like, it's I'm the one. It's not the woman. It's me. Like, come leading you through the crowd. <laughs> yeah, but look, at a house party, why do I end up on the piano bench? Because I fundamentally can only feel comfortable socially when I'm being useful musically. A hundred percent. But ironically, that's why I'm a DJ. It was very much like for a lot for me and quite a few, I don't know about the, I don't know about the new generation of DJs. I think it's a little different because there's so much, it's such a like established career and so much. But for me in the nineties, I distinctly remember I wanted a place to stand. And that's what's so funny that it's a booth, you know, like think about what it actually is. You're in this little protected booth. That's right. Nobody can try to get you to dance. in any party. Listening to Last Party on Earth with Chili Gonzalez. I'm your host, Tiga, and I present part two Shaman or Showman. 
mean, piano is pretty central to what you do, your life and everything. What do you, do you have any special thought about piano house? You know, like when you hear a house track. Yeah, I love piano with house. With a piano riff. Sure. I remember once you, you like, I think you liked some Eric Prids records or something. You told yeah. me once. Piano. Yeah, piano. In, the, in our world, we, we pretty much straight call it piano house. You know, there's a moment in studio where you're like, oh, let's go piano house. Dun, 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 dun. You know, you, does it just to you sound like everything else? Or do you have a little party you were like, God, that's... I blank. love it because okay. it's a very clear gesture that, that embodies the piano. Like what I love about the piano is that... There it puts are, it right out there. Like and there are piano riffs in, in, in rap music that I love to just sort of throw in in the middle of a set because they're a gesture. I'm so interested in gestures, especially because the piano travels through time and genre so yeah, successfully. Exactly. It's pretty crazy. When you, that, it's it, really crazy. And, and when people are like, oh, you do so many genres, you don't see that. It's like, well, when you're a pianist, if you play the piano properly, you realize that it's tentacle spread to every genre. So it's not that I'm this like magic power to break down the barriers. It's just the, the piano, the tentacles go under yeah, the barriers and through them. Well, nobody's asking you about Guitar House. No one's asking about Guitar House. No one's asking about like trombone rap either. <laughs> Only flute rap has managed flute to get a small has a tentacle yes, in there. That's, that's the true. only one that managed to get a small foothold. Yeah, I mean, sometimes in the middle of, of, a, of a set, of course, I'll just like throw in a quote from some classic piano riff, whether it's a Dr. Dre song or if it's the organ riff, not quite piano from Crystal Waters' Gypsy Woman. If I bust that out on that's the piano, bomb. People, people freak go crazy. the hell out. I know. And that's power. Yeah. That's musical power. And that's very similar to the power of being able to play any song from the 80s for a crowd of people because you're reaching into their unconscious and you're, you're, you're pointing out the gesture and you're pointing out that this instrument, the piano, has this unique role really in Western music, at least, to reach into every genre. So what, okay, moving along with your party, are we at peak time? If we get to peak time, then we're going like Britney Spears. We're going with... <laughs> universal songs that that mark their moment and we go to the guilty pleasure that allows people to release emotion in a way that they can't in regular polite society so you're going for songs with emotional lyrics from a first person perspective hit me baby one more time is a, is a people you know they Just literally slander. clutch their heart when they start to say my loneliness is killing me One little detail that I want to point out uh, that exists in both Shout by Tears for Fears and Hit Me Baby One More Time is there's these ad-libs. There's these extra little parts. In Shout, it's shout, shout, let it all out, let it all out. Oh, yeah. Out. Oh, yeah. And it's always interesting to see which people in the crowd... Go with that? Go with that and which sort of stick with the, That's the main true. melody. And in, in uh, Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time, it's... And I, my loneliness yeah. is killing me. And, and I, I must go. So these songs that have these little extra, I don't even know what to call that exact gesture. I never gesture. even thought about what that says about you as a person if you're that guy. Well, it's also the person who harmonizes the end of Happy Birthday, right? Yeah, it's like, the same person. Happy birthday to Tiga. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. What's, what is it with those people? They're pointing out that they, they have a more a, detailed yeah. knowledge of the song yeah, yeah. or that they have an ability well, they to be find that. a harmony. They want to stand out. It's a a, essentially attention getting. But it, uh, it, 
it it adds a dimension to the sing-along when people can go and reach for those ad-libs, which are delicious details of those songs. What about those people that are too shy to sing or too shy to get involved? Or they just, you end up, they get roped in. If you reach critical mass, if you have a quorum of enough people, yeah, they all just sort of mouth the words and maybe don't sing very loudly, but they want to feel part of it and they'll sing. They'll sing it. Yeah. Do you think part of dance music's kind of global... I forget it. Boring question. Um, What's that? It has no words? Well, yeah, it wasn't. I, I guess, well, there's the no words part. So it's like it isn't linked to a language specific, but I also meant just it's like there's no pressure in a way to, to get involved. Except for me, there's a huge amount of pressure yeah, because I don't dance. The dance part. You'd be surprised how few people dance now. People used to, well, it depends on the type of party, but definitely in the, D, in the DJ and dance music realm, there was definitely somewhere along the line a slight shift to more of a concert type motion, you know, fixed head looking towards a stage. And Isn't that worse for you? Yeah. Wouldn't you'd rather see people dancing, oh, losing yeah. their minds physically, letting go, right? A hundred percent. Because then you have the I worst of both love, worlds. Then you're suddenly like, well, I'm not a musician, so but this I is, can't. This is a huge deal. This, I'm happy we got to that by accident. But what you're talking about for me personally created a lot of like ambivalence. And it's been like quite a confusing thing in a way. Yeah, I guess like what you just said, you, you feel kind of halfway between two things. And some DJs and some artists, I think, have really mastered that and found a really good zone. Others, not as much. For me, it was always a little bit confusing. But that also happens when you make records that end up kind of radio records, not necessarily straight dance records. So you get a lot of people that like those records. They come so to the show. Yeah. If you That's were, what remixes are for. I know. That's if you're organized. I love, I mean, just for the record, I love watching people really dance. And I think if you spent your life, like you say, if you've been doing it for like a million years, you actually get pretty good at spotting, you know, you, you know, I'm not staring, but I can sense like who's really dancing. It's amazing when people are really going for it. But 20 years ago when you were DJing, it would have been unthinkable that... To just stand there and kind of stare? Well, for the, for, the, for the large majority to not be dancing would have been shocking to yes. you 20 years ago. Yes. And now you've got to sort of pull, put up with it and figure out a way to... I mean, it's... Yeah. It, well, it's different. It's, I mean, the venues have changed. The sta- it also would have been unthinkable for the stage to be like But don't you feel watched or... in a moment where you're not necessarily... I do. Doing anything? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just summed it up so i feel watched because i'm not really doing anything oh while my god I'm, what a nightmare this well, is here's the nightmare this is the equivalent to you being asked to dance by the girl right now some people take a guy like alex okay alex whatever i'm not saying he strategizes but alex has a very good active kind of athletic engaged energy with the crowd when he's DJing. He never really looks like he's doing nothing. I mean, he is doing a lot. He's a very, like he's a technical DJ and, a, and a, he gives out a lot of energy. I don't make fun at all. The, the people like the Steve Aoki. Oh, I have this the, amazing quote. I, I need to read this quote to you. Hang on two seconds. I can't find it right now, but the <laughs> essence of the quote is Steve Aoki, who of course throws cakes into the crowd. Yeah. But, and he's basically saying, He's like saying, back in the days, you would have had to sit through an opera to be entertained. And now we've finally gotten to the point where throwing a cake into the audience has as much power as that. Ooh, you must have loved that. I love like, that. That's because right up your alley. Yeah, it's a sort of the conceptual gesture. That's what it takes to sort of create that connection with your audience now. And that's the time we live in. Everything's reduced and exaggerated now. Yeah. But it's fundamentally the same. You can still trace it back to that fundamental need for spectacle. Yeah. And I think with DJing, it could be a, a misnomer to think it's it's a world without spectacle because it has this sort of, well, you make people dance, therefore you're not really an entertainer. But of course you are. There was genuinely, from the inception of the kind of whatever, Acid House, 1988-89, till maybe the early 90s, there was definitely a disruption in the idea that that you were the spectacle. There was definitely a temporary, I don't know if it lasted, there was a distinct uh, idea and it was related to the drugs and the communal experience and the whatever. There was a distinct idea that the DJ was not the center. That's right. Of a sort of... I don't know not, if it was 100% honest. A sort of it, us. 
rather than yes, me yes, kind of yeah. uh, or or you were more of a guide or whatever like but you know you weren't and the perfect metaphor is a the kind stage. of musical shaman perhaps is that what you're yeah perhaps, i mean i wasn't uh, i was never a musical shaman but i know what you're saying i think the perfect metaphor is the stage shaman or showman it's the eternal question that title of this episode can we call it that yeah shaman, shaman or, showman? or showman done but look at stages right Stages used to be on the ground, same level as everyone else, and now they're like gargantuan. That's right. That tells the story right there. That's a pretty big story. In the DJ world, again, with a lot of my other friends, I've, I bring this up a lot, There, the idea of do you keep records secret, you know, or this idea. Now, already it's kind of out of fashion. It used to be a bigger deal, hiding your records, you know, only I have this, nobody else, blah, blah, blah. Ex- exclusivity, a bit of ego, you know, just this idea. Either do you have any music or records that you ever felt that way about selfishly kind of keep for yourself? Or Yes. Th- these wouldn't be things I would necessarily play at the, at the karaoke. So now we go a little bit outside of the karaoke world, but there are some records that I feel, um, especially for other musicians, that I'm like, have you heard this? And if they hear it, it's sort of life-changing for them, but it's sort of obscure and never really reached peak musical community. And therefore you sort of have this chance to change another musician's life. Do you want me to say what it is? Yeah. It's, there's <laughs> no, a, no. So there is a, um, a kind of guru. So a lot of people have heard of the filmmaker, uh, Jodorowsky, yes. the Mexican filmmaker. And he studied spiritually speaking, with this guy called Gurdjieff, who is an Azerbaijani half charlatan, half spiritual guru for a lot of people. And he had all these folk songs that he would play on the harmonium, which is this sort of weird air organ instrument, very folky and ethnic and specific to where he came from. One of his disciples was a disillusioned classical pianist from Germany named Thomas de Hartmann. And he sort of was like, I don't want to be this guy playing all this Mozart and this Bach and Beethoven. And he fell in love with the Gurdjieff myth and the Gurdjieff protocol. And he decided to transcribe all of those folk songs that Gurdjieff was playing on his old rickety harmonium and translate them into the world of classical piano. And he recorded them. There's maybe a hundred or 120 plus of these songs. You can go hear it on Apple Music or Spotify. It's the music of Gurdjieff as played by Thomas DeHartman. And it sounds a little bit like classical music because it's on the piano, but it has no ego. There is no composer's ego. There is a purity there. The music never calls attention to itself. And so in a strange way, it might dovetail with what we've talked about with the moments where you said, that's too much music. This needs to be reduced more. It needs to feel more communal. And when I play this for musicians, they can't believe something like this exists. Because when it first starts, you think you might be hearing the opening bars of Beethoven or Schubert or some nice classical music. But it never really develops because there is no pretense of the artist in this music. special uh because there are 120 pieces you can put it on and perhaps spend almost an entire day listening to it the songs kind of all sound the same in many ways it's hard to differentiate between them because there aren't these gestures that really call attention to themselves so it has elements of ambient music it has elements of um mysticism i would say 
uh, because there is this spiritual part to it. It almost has some of the qualities of gospel music that I love because gospel music tends to have less of the musician's ego because it's God Jesus or, or God yeah. is the overriding sort of uh, star star of it. Exactly. <laughs> That's something I love about gospel music. What I love about folk music, what I love about background music. These are all things where it's not about the ego of the person who's playing the music. And that's always very attractive to me as I've struggled so much with the presence of my own ego in my music and how to get away from it or um, transcend it or transform it. So that would be my secret record. Now, if we go back to the karaoke for just a moment, yeah. there are some songs that you think might not work as a sing-along. And sometimes I bust those out. One of those is There Is a Light That Never Goes Out by the Smiths. So that's Errol's closing record at Trash. Oh, well, and it seems night. like it's such a depressing song. How no. could it create community? But if you start to bust that out in karaoke, people really, really react strongly. It seems maybe counterintuitive. Take me This is a little a side note here, but I love this story so much. I've told a few friends. It just makes me so happy. Tell me a story about, it was for the conservatory, right? Yes, the conservatory, which is my music workshop I do every year. I bring about seven or eight musicians from all over the world, and uh, we do a, a whole composing and performing kind of boot camp. But sprinkled in on those 10 days are some of my musician friends either coming to address the students or me taking them somewhere in the case of this is the best okay in the case of the paris edition uh because i'm friends with thomas from daft punk i said would you be interested in in being one of the guest teachers and how could it work he said well i don't want to be filmed i don't want to be photographed maybe you can just come to me and we can take advantage of the fact that nobody knows what i look like and basically oh man now that's a drag because i know you want to hear the end of that Daft Punk story. No problem. Uh, it can be arranged. All you got to do is subscribe to Club Sexor, which is my Patreon members only account. Go to patreon.com slash Tiga and uh, join. And all the riches of my mind become yours. It's quite simple. Last. Last, last party.